You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is part one of my two-part end of season eight special focusing on Fred and Rose West. Before we get into it, as always, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know the Western Lowland Gorilla's scientific name is... Gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. Made me chuckle for some reason. <laughs> and now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. It sounds like this. Random quote of the day. Crocodiles are easy. They try to kill and eat you. People are harder. Sometimes they pretend to be your friend first. Was said by legendary Steve Irwin. This week's case was suggested by listeners Hannah Roberts, Lily Johansson and Louise. We're in a few locations for this story, but the main one is the town of Gloucester in Gloucestershire. Here are five quickfire facts about Gloucester. Number one, aside from housing the burial place of King Edward II, one of only a few monarch tombs outside of London, Gloucester Cathedral hosted the coronation of King Henry III in 1216, who was nine years old at the time when he succeeded to the throne. Number two, Roman ruins can be found in the underground viewing chamber at Gloucester Eastgate Railway Station. The site includes the base of a 13th century tower and a horse pool. Number three, said to be Beatrix Potter's personal favourite story, the tailor of Gloucester was inspired after the author heard the true story of a local tailor and visited his shop in Gloucester. Number four, the Great East Window at Gloucester Cathedral boasted the accolade of being the largest window in the world when it was installed in the 1350s and still remains a landmark of European medieval stained glass. It stands 22 metres high and 12 metres wide. And finally, number five, the Doomsday Book was planned when William the Conqueror held the Christmas court in Gloucester back in 1085. He directed his men to visit shires across England and to find out how the land was occupied. As of the 2021 census, the estimated population of Gloucester was 132,500. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners, including incest and the torture, murder and sexual assault of children. As always, listener discretion is advised. This case is probably the hardest one I've had to research to date, It's not because of the volume of murders. I haven't even covered those yet for my research. This part one doesn't even feature any murders in it. But my God, there's a reason why Fred and Rose West are probably the two most infamous serial killers England has ever had the unfortunate accolade of making. Some of the stuff they did is unbelievable. It's disgusting. You couldn't even think it up in the worst kind of horror movie I just want to warn you, that trigger warning I just gave you, content warning, it's warranted 100% for this episode. The way it's going to work for this episode, as I say, we're not covering the murders, but what I'm going to do is talk about Fred first, his background, early life, and then to the point where he actually meets Rose, then I'll go a little bit into her history, her background, and then their time spent together as a married couple. I just want to point out before we begin that there's so much coverage on this case 
some of the information I found contradicts the other sources used. So there's probably a couple of bits in there that might be slightly incorrect, but for the most part, the story, as far as I'm aware, is correct. We begin on September 19th, 1941. A curly-haired baby boy was brought into the world by married couple Walter and Daisy West. He was the couple's third child, but would be the first to survive infancy. For that reason, the boy had an extra special place in his mum's heart and would remain her favourite child despite five more kids joining the family over the next few years. Daisy had no idea that her precious baby boy would grow up to be described as being the epitome of evil. Her first surviving child's full name was Frederick Walter Stephen West. The birth took place at Bickerton Cottage, the home of Daisy and Walter, in the Herefordshire village of Muchmarkle. The West lived at the cottage but didn't own it. A tied cottage, Bickerton was owned by Frank Brooke, Walter's employer, who let the family live there. Walter was a milking herdsman, whilst Daisy was a maid. A low-income, working-class family, the Wests were strict with their children and disciplined them when necessary. With Walter being the stricter of the two, Daisy played the role of a protective mother, especially with Fred. The cottage was what optimists would call cosy, but what pessimists would call tiny. It had two bedrooms, which at first wasn't a problem when Fred was born, but when his five siblings came along, the place became a tad crowded. Frank Brooke eventually added a third bedroom to make things more comfortable for the ever-growing family. Growing up, Fred wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he certainly made up for it with his confidence and cheek. Some have said that Fred was easily swayed into unfavourable situations and was, as most children are, naive. His early childhood seems rather normal, as far as I can make out, although Fred would say some vile things about what went on that his siblings have said is nonsense. For example, Fred said after his arrest in 1994 that his mum had introduced him to sex at the tender age of 12. He also made outlandish claims that his parents explained to him all about bestiality and encouraged him to practice the taboo act. Walter allegedly had sex with his daughters, according to Fred, and told his son that the most important thing was to not get caught. Doug, Fred's youngest brother, dismissed those claims by saying, None of us was ever abused in any way by anybody. As far as mum and Fred and dad and animals, that was just fantasy by somebody. The concerning thing is that if those claims are, in fact, bollocks, Fred West simply must have been born evil. A lot of what he claimed had happened to him as a child were things he would go on to do in his later life. Perhaps he wanted to justify his actions to himself and others. Only he knew. Fred struggled in school and remained only semi-literate for the rest of his life. He was too busy getting into bother to concentrate on his studies. Everyone has something they're good at though, and for Fred it was drawing and carpentry the latter of which would play a huge role in the crimes he would commit as an adult. Proof of that was when he assaulted a young girl that rejected his advances at a dance on one occasion. He would later attempt to seriously harm a girl by hopping on his motorbike and driving right at her. Leaving the village school at 15, Fred began working as a labourer for Frank Brook with his brother John, who was one year his junior. The West brothers worked on various sites around Gloucestershire until Fred decided that the farming life wasn't for him. Fred and John shared similar depraved sexual fantasies and tried their luck with women and girls at a local youth club. Often rejected, the pair would fondle the girls in plain view of everyone else at the club, which showed how little they cared and perhaps how they didn't feel like they were doing anything wrong. 
On November 28, 1958, a 17-year-old Fred West was driving his beloved motorcycle when he was suddenly involved in an accident so serious he spent the next week in a coma. Several surgeries later, Fred awoke with a metal plate in his head. Reports suggest that, despite already being on a dark path, the teenager was never the same after the accident. Couple that with another head injury he sustained by falling from a fire escape, and it's no wonder some psychologists think his crimes were a direct result of those brain injuries having occurred. The brain damage Fred is suspected to have suffered likely affected his ability to control his emotions and impulses. Many experts believe he may not have become the vile serial killer he did had those accidents not happened. In 1960, Fred met a girl he became infatuated with at a dance hall in Muchmarkle. Catherine Bernadette Costello was two and a half years younger than Fred, so she'll have been around 15 or 16 when they met at the dance, with Fred being 18 or 19. Originally from the town of Coatbrig in North Lanarkshire, Scotland, Catherine, who went by the name Rena, worked as a waitress at the Milkmaid Milk Bar in the centre of Ledbury, the town in which much Markle is located. Fred was a regular at the bar, as were many other young people. Fred and Rena went their separate ways at that point and wouldn't reconnect for a couple of years. Before they did, Fred saw himself in trouble with the police in June 1961 after his younger sister Kitty told her mum that Fred had raped her on several occasions. Kitty was 13 at the time, seven years Fred's junior, and worse still, her older brother had got her pregnant. Fred was banished from the cottage and moved in with his Aunt Violet. Five months after Kitty bravely opened up about what had been going on, Fred was tried at Herefordshire Assizes. His mum, Daisy, was ready and willing to defend her favourite child, but it wouldn't matter, as Kitty was too traumatised and, no doubt, scared to testify against her brother. Getting away with a rape charge, Fred was instead found guilty of child molestation. Further sexual advances on other minors occurred after this, with Fred reportedly saying on one occasion when questioned, doesn't everybody do it? No, Fred, everybody doesn't do it. Fred's crimes also consisted of petty theft from his various employers on construction sites throughout the county. He briefly moved back home in 1962 before reconnecting with Rena and starting a romantic relationship with her. The pair eloped on November 17th, 1962 at Ledbury Registry Office and moved north of the border to Rena's hometown of Coatbrig a couple of weeks later. One thing I haven't mentioned is that when Fred and Rena reconnected, Rena was pregnant by another man. When they married in November 1962, Rena was around six months pregnant. The father was supposedly a Pakistani bus driver and concerns over Rena's family's reaction once they discovered her baby was mixed race was enough of a reason for them to flee Coatbrig. Like a new husband, Rena had had her fair share of interactions with the police, but not to the extent that Fred had. Rena's charges were for things such as burglary and sex work. The couple's first home was a flat on Hospital Street, but they moved around a fair bit whilst up in Scotland. Moving 10 miles east to the city of Glasgow, Fred and Rena lived first at a flat on Savoy Street in Glasgow's Bridgeton neighbourhood before relocating to McClellan Street in Glasgow's Kinning Park. One of the first things Fred did once in Glasgow was to rent an allotment plot. He told the committee that he planned to grow some potatoes and cabbages and would regularly be seen turning over the soil, but others weren't convinced. A fellow allotment user named John McLachlan had the following to say about Fred West's allotment plot. West had a piece of ground which was always well dug, but which he never put any plants in. 
I asked him several times why he did not use that bit for potatoes, and he always said he was keeping it for special purposes. He sometimes did not return from the allotment until the early hours of the morning. Nobody knows what he was up to in that allotment. He sure as hell wasn't gardening. For work, Fred earned money as a Mr. Whippy ice cream man. Driving around in a van whose sole purpose was to give sweets to children will have been to Fred the idea of a dream job. He was well known in the local communities as Fred the Ice Cream Man, but a later incident involving his Mr. Whippy van would force him to leave the country. I'll come back to that point shortly. Rena seems to have worked at a Glasgow abattoir at that point, with one of her former colleagues recalling how often Fred seemed to be there despite not being employed by the company that ran it. He seemed fascinated by the dismemberment process and would ask many questions about butchering techniques. Charmaine Carol Mary West, the first child of Rena Costello, was born in early 1963. Various sources claim different dates of birth. Some say it was February, some say March or even April. The exact date isn't important. What is important is that the space on Charmaine's birth certificate where her dad's name should have been was left blank. As expected, Charmaine was mixed race, and her complexion, which was noticeably darker than Fred and Rena's, raised some uncomfortable questions with the married couple's respective families. Rather than admitting the truth, Fred and Rena explained that their actual child was stillborn or had died during the birthing process, so they'd swiftly adopted another baby and named her Charmaine. Whether their families bought that explanation or not is unknown. A couple of years later, on July 6, 1964, Fred and Rena welcomed another daughter to the world whom they named Anne-Marie. This time, Fred was definitely the girl's father. I briefly mentioned an incident involving Fred's ice cream van earlier. Here's what happened. On November 4, 1965, a three-year-old boy called Henry Feeney was run over and killed by Fred's ice cream van. Accounts differ as to what happened that day, but the common consensus is that Fred lured young Henry into an isolated cul-de-sac, either with the promise of a toy or a free ice cream perhaps. Once lured into the street, something happened that led to Fred quickly entering the van and reversing over the child. Some suspect that Henry may have seen something incriminating, so Fred killed him to keep him quiet. Many believe that Henry Feeney was Fred West's first murder victim, but if that's true, it will always be unofficial as the police exonerated him of any involvement. The locals were far less forgiving, and essentially forced Fred and his family to leave the city for his own safety. After being chased by several knife-wielding mobs, the family moved back to Gloucester in around December 1965. Fred was lucky to survive the backlash of the community after killing Henry, as one gang leader said he planned to cut off Fred's head should he be caught. Before making the move back down south, the family met a 16-year-old named Anne McFall, who would join the family as the children's nanny. Rena seems to have remained in Scotland when Fred and Anne moved to Gloucester with the kids, which gave Fred plenty of time to make advances on Anne, with the pair ultimately becoming lovers whilst Rena was away. Not settling on a fixed abode, the West family moved around Gloucester by staying at various caravan parks. Such parks included Timberland Caravan Park in Bishop's Cleeve, Willow's Caravan Site at Sandhurst, and Lake House Caravan Site at Bishop's Cleeve. Fred then pursued his slaughterhouse obsession and secured a job at one in Gloucester for a while. Continuing his luck with vulnerable women, Fred was thought to have been involved in up to 10 separate incidents of assault and sexual assault from late 1965 to early 1966, but he was not charged with anything. 
Rena moved back to Gloucester in around February 1966, which made the already crowded caravans almost unlivable. Both Rena and Anne were subjected to frequent beatings by Fred, whose violent mood swings could be brought on by the most meaningless of things. Charmaine was also regularly beaten and sexually assaulted by her stepdad from a very young age. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Over the next year, the children were taken in by social services before being placed back in their parents' care, and eventually, in November 1966, the family and Anne moved to Watersmead Caravan Site in the village of Brockworth. It was around that month that Anne became pregnant with Fred's child. Wanting to keep the child and begin a new life with Fred, Anne urged him to leave Rena and move away with her. That's the last time Anne will be mentioned in this episode. I'll discuss her story more in part two next week. It's now time for me to introduce the second villain of this story. Rosemary Pauline Letts was born on November 29th, 1953 in the town of Northam in Devon. Rosa's mum, who, like Fred's, was called Daisy, had a difficult time with the pregnancy. She suffered from severe antenatal depression and was subjected to electroconvulsive therapy as a result. We must remember that back in the 50s, mental health knowledge and awareness were nothing like they are now, so using such a procedure will no doubt have been a regular occurrence. The fact Daisy was pregnant was by the by. Such procedures send an electric current through your brain which essentially causes you to have a seizure. The aim of the treatment is to relieve the symptoms of mental health problems such as depression. Experts are convinced that the treatment had a major effect on Rosa's development whilst in the womb and, like Fred with his head injuries, caused a change in her mental faculties. Rose would grow up with a hair-trigger temper and outbursts that were violent beyond comprehension. She was also emotionally withdrawn and lacked empathy. Her dad William, known as Bill, also had mental health issues. He was a former serviceman who quit his military career to look after the kids at home. A diagnosed schizophrenic, Bill is said to have sexually abused Rose from a young age. His motto was, I made you so I can do what I like with you. As a kid, Rose was quiet, so Bill knew she would keep her mouth shut regarding his assaults. Unusual behaviour from Rose included her banging her head against her cot repeatedly and aggressively rocking from side to side on occasion. Bill also saved some of his violence for his wife and the other six children they had. Performing poorly in school, again like Fred, Rose struggled to get to grips with the school's rules. Likely as a result of her being abused, Rose was sexually promiscuous and often preferred to seek the attention of much older men. Another reason for that is that Bill said she was not allowed to date anyone her own age. Rose would frequently walk around the house with no clothes on throughout her teenage years and would sometimes molest her younger brother while they lay in bed. Honestly, the similarities between Fred and Rose are shocking. After moving to Bishop's Cleave in around 1964, Daisy eventually grew tired of being her husband's punching bag and moved out of the house in the 60s and took Rose with her, but Rose moved back in with her dad shortly after. Not long after Rose's 15th birthday, so we're talking late 1968 or early 1969, she was waiting at a bus stop in Cheltenham one day when an older man approached her and struck up a conversation. The man in question was 27-year-old Fred West. Rose rejected Fred at first as she was put off by his unkept appearance, but if Fred was anything, he was persistent. 
He continued to meet Rose at the bus stop over the next few days and often rode the bus with her, all the while using his charm to win her over. Eventually, they started having an affair. Fred was still married to Rena at the time. Rose was working at a local bakery when she met Fred, but before long he'd offered her a job as his kid's nanny, a job he'd offer many girls over the next few years. Rose took the job, much to the dismay of her father. Bill hated Fred at first, and his anger led to Rose being forced to attend a home for problematic teens in Cheltenham in the autumn of 1969, but within a few months, she'd be living with Fred and the kids. Before then, in October 1969, Rena walked away from her relationship with Fred West. She would often return to check up on the welfare of Charmaine and Anne-Marie, but the beatings and sexual assaults she received at Fred's hands were too much to bear. The kids were subsequently taken away once more by social services, but Rena briefly moved back to Gloucester until they were returned back into their care. Within a few days of getting their kids back, Rena moved back to Scotland. What exactly happened to her after that is subject to much speculation, but as with Anne McFall, I'll discuss the rest of Rena's story in part two. By January 1970, Rose was pregnant with Fred's child, so they moved to a flat at 25 Midland Road in Gloucester that summer. Charmaine and Rose despised each other, with the former suffering greatly at the hands of the latter. Charmaine's rebellious nature combined with Rose's violent and aggressive mood swings likely made for a highly toxic and dangerous environment. On October 17th, 1970, Fred and Rose welcomed their first child to the world, a daughter they named Heather Ann West. Fred only had a couple of months to spend with his youngest daughter, as in December of that year, he was handed a 10-month jail sentence for petty theft. The abuse the children were subjected to by Rose only increased when Fred got sent down. Rose was emotionally immature and had to now care for three children, two of whom weren't hers, at the age of 17. One of Charmaine's friends from back then recalled finding the seven-year-old stood naked on a chair one time with her hands tied behind her back and a gag in her mouth. Fred was released from prison on June 24th, 1971, and the first thing Rose tasked him with is something I'm going to discuss in more detail next week. All I'll say for now is that it involves Charmaine. At the beginning of 1972, on January 29th, Fred and Rose secretly married at Gloucester Register Office. The pair, who were by that point 18 and 30 respectively, were expecting their second child at the time, with Rose being around four months pregnant. The baby girl was born on June 1st, 1972, and she was named May June West. At some point in 1972, it was either whilst Rose was pregnant or shortly after she gave birth, the family moved from 25 Midland Road to 25 Cromwell Street. The property would later become known as Fred and Rose's House of Horrors and would later be demolished on the back of the atrocities that occurred there. The house on Cromwell Street was a decent size, so to earn extra income, the West rented out some of its rooms to lodgers. There was an extraordinarily heavy amount of footfall as... By that point, Rose was earning income as a sex worker for men that Fred would bring home. The house became notorious for its sex parties, which often included Fred filming men have sex with his wife then showing the videos to their children. The upstairs area was converted into a sort of red light district. The kids knew that if the red light was on up there, they mustn't go up. The men would either be work colleagues of Fred's who he'd brought home, lodgers staying at the house, or men who had responded to Fred's adverts offering Rose's services in a local contact magazine. Rose often boasted to her clients that no man or woman could entirely please her, which excited Fred even more. 
If that isn't shocking enough, I felt sick when I read that Bill Letts, Rose's dad, would even pop around to have sex with his daughter. This happened only a few days after Rose had given birth to May. Jane Hamer, a former lodger at 25 Cromwell Street, explained to Sir Trevor MacDonald in a documentary about Fred and Rose that she ended her tenancy after hearing a child screaming in the middle of the night. Jane said, I heard screaming in the middle of the night. Stop it, daddy. Stop it, daddy. And it sounded like one of the children. That was my reason for leaving. I thought I was next. Regarding her landlords, Jane explained that Fred was the more approachable of the two, as Rose was rather domineering and rude. In reference to the property's basement, Jane said, Fred West took me to and showed me the cellar. There was a little bed there, and I thought it was for the children. I found out years later, it wasn't. The cellar was, in fact, a sex dungeon and torture chamber, where the Wests would rape, torture, and murder several young girls. There are haunting images of the basement online if you're interested in seeing what it looked like. One of the first people to be assaulted by Fred and Rose in the basement was Anne-Marie, Fred's first biological child whose mum was Rena Costello. Anne-Marie was raped by her father in the basement whilst Rose held her down. That incident wasn't isolated. It happened over and over again. A few years later, Anne-Marie would be forced into sex work with Fred telling the men involved that she was 16. She was actually 13. May, meanwhile, was forced to work as Rose's secretary in charge of taking bookings and collecting money from her clients. May didn't escape her father's advances, though. Both she and Heather were regularly molested by Fred. He would say to them that it was his right as a father to take his daughter's virginities. He called it breaking them in. Only right and proper it is, he'd say. My old man did the same to my sisters. You see, I made you. You're my flesh and blood. It's only right I get to see what I made. The house was a complete mess by this point. Sex toys were scattered everywhere, used condoms were allegedly kept inside storage jars all over the place. May said in her tell-all book that men had walked past her room while she was trying to do her homework and ask if she was available. May West, who has since changed her name, released her book in 2018 and it's honestly one of the toughest reads I've ever come across. The content is incredibly disturbing, but if you want to know more about this case, I'd start there. It's called Love As Always, Mum, the true and terrible story of surviving a childhood with Fred and Rose West. By late 1972, around the Halloween period, Fred and Rose picked up a 17-year-old girl named Caroline Owens who was walking alone down an isolated country road after meeting a boy she was seeing in Tewkesbury. Telling the stranger she'd run away from home, they gave her a lift back to Cromwell Street and offered her a job as their nanny. She'd be able to live at the house with them, so at the very least she'd have a roof over her head. Caroline accepted the role, but would question as to why so many strange men were wandering around the house at all times. I'm a masseuse, would be Rosa's response. Before long, the couple made some sexual advances towards Caroline. In one terrifying conversation, Fred told Caroline that if she ever needed an abortion, he had the necessary tools and skill set to carry one out. He'd done plenty before, he said, trying to reassure her, but the conversation took a turn when Fred followed that up by saying that the people he performed the procedures on usually offered him sex in return. Caroline would run away from Cromwell Street, but a few days later was found again walking on the same country road by Fred and Rose. Apologising, they invited the teenager back to Cromwell Street for a brew. Once there, Caroline was almost immediately subjected to a series of brutal sexual assaults. 
I'm not going to go into detail as to what happened to Caroline, but it all took place in the basement. Incredibly, the couple let Caroline go after she promised not to tell anyone about what they'd done to her, but the first thing she did once she'd escaped was inform the police. As with Kitty, Fred's 13-year-old sister, Caroline was too ashamed to give evidence against Fred and Rose, so they were only charged with indecent assault in the end and received a 50-quid fine each. Caroline's escape was a turning point. Fred and Rose realised that they could no longer leave any of their victims alive for fear of being reported to the police. They would go through a cycle of finding young babysitters, bringing them back to Cromwell Street and committing atrocious acts of violence and sexual assault. A quick note on the basement. It was also the place where Heather, May and Stephen, who was born in August 1973, slept. In May's book, she goes into detail about what it was like down there. Their toilet was a bucket placed in the corner of the room. If they needed to use it during the night, they'd have to do so in darkness, as Rose would unscrew the light bulb after tucking them all tightly in their respective beds. She did this to prevent them from being able to turn the light on and get up to mischief, as she put it. There were no bedtime stories or goodnight kisses in those children's lives. May also has a chapter in her book called Uncle John. John, if you remember, was Fred's younger brother. In 1977, when she was just five years old, May was raped by her Uncle John one evening when Fred and Rose had gone out and left the kids in his care. May said of the encounter, It didn't last long. I know it must have hurt, probably hurt a lot, but I have blocked the memory of the pain out. I'm sure I must have bled, although I can't remember that either. Anne-Marie would later reveal to May that she too had been sexually abused by John and advised her to watch out for him. John would go on to take his own life by hanging himself in 1996, the day after May testified against him in court. In late 1978, Fred, Rose and the kids visited Butlin's Barry Island seaside resort as they did every year. Whilst there, Fred had an affair with an 18-year-old Butlin's worker called Lynn. Lynn has said of her time with Fred, He told me Rose was his sister. They had three kids with them, two girls and a boy. He took me out drinking on the island. We got drunk and had sex in his chalet when Rose wasn't there. He stayed in Barry for a fortnight and we had a fling for 10 or 12 days of his holiday. Nine months later, in July 1979, Lynn gave birth to a son whom she called Dean. He would grow up having no idea that his biological father was Fred West and only found out shortly after the serial killer's crimes came to light in 1994. Rose went on to have even more children. Louise and Barry were Fred's, but Tara, Rosemary Jr. and Lucy Anna were the children of some of Rose's clients. Some sources claim each child has the same father, whereas others claim they all have different fathers. The children who weren't Fred's biological children would go on to explain that they weren't subjected to abuse like his natural kids were. It goes back to Fred's belief about it being his right to do what he wanted with his own kids, but not with someone else's. That logic is flawed, though, given the abuse he subjected to Charmaine and the fact that he likely intentionally killed Henry. In 1979, May recalled Rose strangling Stephen to the point where May was concerned he might die. He had refused to get down from the kitchen counter, as most six-year-olds do, and she'd laid hands on him after throwing a dish at his head. May was once attacked with a knife by her mum, whilst Tara was also beaten after throwing some food on the floor while sat in her high chair. May has stated that she finds it hard to cry even now due to there being a strict no-crying rule at Cromwell Street. Crying led to being beaten, so all emotion was kept in check. Barry recalled an incident involving Heather in which Rose stamped on her daughter's head, leaving her unconscious. 
Speaking of Barry, he was taken into care when he was young and suffered many psychiatric problems as a result of what he experienced at Cromwell Street. He spiralled into drug addiction and was sadly found dead in 2020 at a hostel in Maidstone, Kent, after taking a suspected drug overdose. Stephen West would go on to be jailed in January 2002 for having sex with a 14-year-old girl, a crime for which he received a nine-month sentence. Stephen said the sex was consensual and that the two were in a relationship. Heather West disappeared in 1987, and whenever the other kids misbehaved or refused his sexual advances, Fred would threaten them by saying they would wind up under the patio, just like their sister. And that concludes part one of the story of British serial killer couple Fred and Rose West. Thanks again, Hannah Roberts, Lily Johansson and Louise for suggesting that case. I've got seven new reviews to read this week. Sue Green left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled G'day from Australia. It reads, Originally from Liverpool, UK and now living in Perth, Australia. Mum and I listen to Stuart while we are sewing. Mum, who is 87, won't listen to any others. She'll only listen to Stuart as she loves his accent and little snide comments and always says cheerio before Stuart does. Keep up the good work, honey. Liv left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Amazing. It reads, I love this podcast and it is my favourite over all the other true crime podcasts. I like the others too, obviously, but yours makes me relax during the day. Ross M left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled A Great Listen. It reads... Stuart does a great job of keeping some horrendous events light and informative. Keeps me wanting more. Check out the deadly butler, Archibald Hall. I've added that case to my spreadsheet for you, Ross. Titchener's Wound left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts titled Where Has This Been? It reads, Cannot believe I've only just found this podcast. Absolutely love it. The delivery is spot on and episodes not overly dramatic and a good length. Can't wait to work my way through the back catalogue. Cassandra H left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Excellence. It reads, Your podcast helps to pass the time while I'm at work in the evenings. Love learning about the lesser-known murders. Not sure if that's a good thing to admit. It's great to add in the daddy facts and haikus in the beginning before getting into some gruesome facts. Love your sense of humour. I find myself giggling from time to time. It breaks up the seriousness of the podcast too. Thank you in advance for reading my review. Cheerio. Judy C. left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com title Completely Hooked. It reads, Absolutely brilliant. Been binge listening to your podcast on Amazon Music for days and days now. Love the no-rubbish format that anyone can listen to and understand. Keep up the good work. And finally, Jenny Paxton left a five-star review which read, Always look forward to a Thursday when Stuart's latest episodes are released. I run a lot and Stu's voice keeps me company as I go. Love his chilled tone and the fact that he doesn't judge just gives us the facts to make our own minds up. His voice accent is lovely too. <laughs> voice accent, love that. True crime junkie, Jen. P.S. Thanks for covering my story on David Heiss. You're welcome. Thank you, Sue, Liv, Ross, Titchener's Wound, Cassandra, Judy and Jenny for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via buying me a coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon member, Gary Wall. Thank you again to reviewer Sue Green for buying me three beers via buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. 
The note left was, Cheers, Stuart. Keep up the good work. Sue and Mum. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a lovely cheeky little shout out. Next week, I'll be releasing part two of this end of season special. I'll be discussing the 10 murders Fred and Rose were both charged with, as well as the additional two that Fred was charged with. Well, that's it for part one. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.